Hello, I'm Yanis Varoufakis. I'm at Novara Media, and I have a message for you. The best way of uh, underpinning any kind of potential resistance to a very toxic establishment without being populist anti-establishment and by supporting good, rational, humanist causes is to support left-wing media like Novara Media. Novara Media and all such media need your support because they certainly do not have the support of the establishment. Cape diem. For more than a century, socialists have believed that capitalism will end and it will be replaced by something else, something better. But what if it ended and was replaced by something potentially worse? What if we were moving towards post-capitalism, but that didn't mean a more dignified, equitable economy, but in fact, greater inequality than ever before? Well, that's the hypothesis of today's guest. He thinks that we're moving back towards a world of feudalism, where the future looks increasingly like the past, but with digital characteristics. Yanis Varoufakis, welcome to Downstream. It's very good to be back. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to talk to you again. Well, it's my pleasure. You said it's good to be back. I mean, we first met in 2015, I think. Mm -hmm. You look younger now, Yanis, than you did then. That's eight years ago. How'd you do it? Well, it's not true, but I thank you profusely for this very sweet and sugar-coated lie of yours. Uh, if it is true, it's all subterfuge. Subterfuge. <laughs> Maybe there's some advanced technology. You're not very old. You're not letting very, us... Really? Very worn around the edges. Oh, yeah, it's been a very difficult year, Aaron. Very difficult year. We'll get on to that, particularly in regards to the politics of Greece, but I think you mean obviously more widely too. We're yep. talking about your new book, which of course you. is relevant to all that. Techno-feudalism, What Killed Capitalism. I guess for me, it's towards the end where you encapsulate the hypothesis in a single line. What if we've achieved post-capitalism, but it isn't socialism? Mm -hmm. So can you sort of unpack that a bit? Because I think most people would think that we're just in a, a hyper-violent, decaying, degenerate form of capitalism, but your hypothesis is something a little bit different. Oh, it's very different. It's uh, profoundly different. But uh, let me remind you that... Uh, uh, I'm not the first to hypothesize that if socialism as a project fails, we will end up with barbarism. Remember Rosa Luxemburg, mm. the famous question from her prison cell? Socialism or barbarism? It turns out that it is barbarism. And of course, it's very technologically advanced. It is based on huge quantities of capital. So capital has triumphed. Uh, and that answers the second part of your, your question. Of course, wherever you look, you come face to face with the triumph of capital, with the triumph of those who own capital, capitalists. But what I'm saying here is that, in the end, it wasn't the left, the organized labor movement that uh, appended capitalism. We used to think and hope that it would be labor that uh, is the comeuppance of capitalism. With capitalism, remember what Marx said and Engels, capitalism creates its grave diggers, the proletariat, the organized laborers who will rise up and take possession of the means of production capital and put it to good use for, for society as a whole. It didn't happen, as you know. 
as we all know, unfortunately. But what happened was another construct, another product of capitalism did that job. And that other product was capital in itself. So my hypothesis is that this, uh, is, is that capital was so successful, like a very toxic virus, which kills off its host, and therefore it cannot propagate itself, like Ebola, which is a stupid virus, unlike COVID-19. COVID-19 killed very few people uh, as a percentage of those who were infected, and therefore it spread and became a pandemic. Ebola never left particular villages in Africa because it killed all of them before it could spread. Capital developed a mutation of itself, which I call cloud capital, a particular form of capital, which has killed off capitalism, its host. That's my hypothesis. I know it's extremely controversial. Most of the people on the left do not like it at all for two reasons. Firstly, because they think, hang on, it's not capitalism, it's not socialism. How can that be? And the answer is Rosa Luxemburg, it's barbarism. Uh, and the second reason is because our task as socialists is now, if I'm right, is immensely harder. Because my point now is that you don't just have exploitation in the enterprise at the level of the firm, on the, sh on the factory or the shop floor. You've got, a that, that continues, of course. It's the main spring of surplus value. It's the only spring of surplus value to this day. That has not changed from capitalism. But what has happened is, if you're Jeff Bezos, if you are the owner of Google, of Apple, of you know, if you're Elon Musk, then you own this new form of cloud capital, which allows you to extract from the rest of society, from proletarians, but from everyone else as well, huge quantities of rents and surpluses, in a manner that reconstitutes a form of feudalism. The difference is that instead of feudal, the original feudalism, which is a system based on private ownership of land, which produces rent, now it's private ownership of the cloud, of cloud capital, because the cloud is capital, right? It's not some cloud up on the sky, in the sky, which yields again a form of rent. Every time you buy something from Amazon.com, 40% of what you pay doesn't go to the capitalist who is selling you that stuff. It goes to Jeff Bezos. That's a cloud rent, and he is a new form of feudal lord. I think most people would accept this is a big new part of the, of the global economy in the last 20 years. Where somebody might disagree with you is they would say, well, Yanis, this is ideological. You're presuming that this quite important you know, and, and highly discussed part of the economy, you know, the richest person in the world, Elon Musk, the world's largest companies or big tech companies. I didn't ever think I'd see a $3 trillion company. That's what uh, Apple now is. They would say, fine, but look, wars still happen because of petrol, because mm -hmm. of food, because of access to clean drinking water. The United States is worried about Taiwan because of its semiconductor manufacture. So the world still revolves around resources, minerals, rare earths, and manufactured commodities. Is that a criticism? Does that disagree with what you're saying? Or no, it's a, you, it, you, you presumably have a rebuttal to it. Well, of course. I mean, it always did. Feudalism. I mean, th think of the great clashes between the medieval forces, medieval powers. Uh, they were clashing over resources, over surplus distribution, over ideologies, over a reach of empire. Uh, that was happening well before capitalism was established. So nothing has changed. And feudalism, capitalism, and now techno-feudalism in that regard. 
But if you're going to understand, for instance, you mentioned Taiwan. Why is Taiwan an issue now? If you ask them, United States government, they'll tell you, oh, because, you know, they're, 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 Beijing wants to gobble it up. It always wanted to gobble it up. I mean, the United States has never recognized Taiwan because it recognized as part of the deal between Nixon and Mao that uh, China has a claim to Taiwan. So what is new exactly? In my book, I try to explain what I think is new, and it's the rise of cloud capital, the shift from capitalism to techno-feudalism. Because if you think about it, after, uh, after 1971, when the gold standard died and the dollar was no longer exchangeable with gold, the United States has built its power on a remarkable model of a world system whereby uh, the United States has a huge trade surplus which acts as a vacuum cleaner, sucking into its territory the products of Chinese capitalists, or Chinese labor to be precise, of German, of Dutch, of Italian, Japanese of course. And how does it pay with that? for that? With IOUs called dollars, because it prints them. And why do the Chinese, the Japanese, the German capitalists accept those IOUs, the dollars? Because they use it to go to take it back to Wall Street and to invest in real estate, in bonds, effectively financing the American government. So that, that, that's the model since 90, the mid-1970s. And that whole model is predicated upon what? On the monopoly of the payment system of the dollar and the dollar payment system, right? What has happened in the last 10-15 years, which I try to map out in techno-feudalism, is that the Chinese are the only alternative locus in which cloud capital emerged. Europe has no cloud capital of its own. We don't have a Google, we don't have a Facebook, we don't have a Tesla, we don't have anything. Zero. Europe, and that includes Britain. The Chinese have. We have only fans. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so, if you... If you, if you take an app like WeChat, or if you take the digital currency that is being tested, massively tested, 135 million accounts by the Central Bank of China, they are developing the technology to have a payment system which is denominated not in dollars, but in one. This rise of Chinese techno-feudalism, if you want a, a, a Chinese cloud thief, in contradiction with the American cloud thief, explains why Taiwan is an issue. Yeah, I think it's a really original explanation for rising geopolitical tensions, which I've not seen elsewhere. I'm sure I'm sure some people have sort of hinted at it. But the idea that what's really upsetting the United States is the emergence of big tech conglomerates that can compete with their own ones. And obviously, the most visible example of that is the geopolitical furore around TikTok, uh, which, which you touch upon in the book. And I think it is true to an extent that clearly the world is diverging, particularly as we move into a world of AI, diverging into these two spheres of influence. There was a great um, paper a few years ago by PricewaterhouseCooper saying that AI was going to add around $17 trillion to the global economy by 2030, 2035. And almost all of this is going to China and the United States. You know, none of it is going to South America or Africa. Or Europe. Or Europe, exactly. So I find that a really original argument. But to step back a bit, because I think you, you, you just mentioned what you referred to as the global minotaur in the book and what happens after 1971, mm -hmm. which explains where we are now and even things like US-China relations. So let's go back to 1971. We have the disadoption of the gold standard um, by Nixon. Why did that happen? And what has it meant in the ensuing sort of 
period of 50 plus years now? Thank you for the question, which is very dear to my heart, as you probably <laughs> know. But before answer, answering this, allow me to preface it with a comment about the thing you said at the beginning. It's not just that the Americans, that Trump initially and Biden later, worried that big tech in China is rising. It's not just that. That would not worry them so much on its own. It is that Chinese big tech, a company like Alibaba or Tencent or Huawei, is rising in a country where the banking sector does not have autonomous power, unlike Britain. Britain with the city of London and America with Wall Street. In China, because of the power of the Chinese Communist Party, the political power, the big tech companies and the banks have fused. They've become one. So you have an app like WeChat, which is Elon Musk's wet dream. What Elon Musk wants to do with Twitter is to replicate WeChat. WeChat, imagine an app that does everything. It shows you uh, photographs. uh, It plays music. It shows movies. It allows you to communicate. It's got something like Facebook on it. And allows you free payments, free payments. You make payments and the bank does not retain anything either from you or from the vendor. The Americans do not have that. And they do not have that because they don't have the technology to have that, but because, you know, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America will never allow Google and Apple to get away with it, to take over their business. But if you fuse together big tech with big finance, you have something much more powerful, which is what the Chinese have done, than what the Americans have done, have have created. Another point about the Skupta, look, I'm not into projections about what will happen in 20, 30 years. Now, this is a book not of what is going to hit us in the next five, 10 yeah. years. Yeah. This is a book about what has already happened. Mm. And now to your question. What happened in uh, 1971, which I explained in the Global Minute, thank you for mentioning, and I can actually can see a copy of it back there. <laughs> we're, we're well read here at Navarro Media. <laughs> I can see that. Well, thank you for that. The story I tell in that book, is that after the Second World War, the United States created a centrally planned capitalist global economy. Centrally planned. Because if you think about it, it's very difficult for young people today to wrap their minds around that. Between 1944 and 1971-72-73, we had fixed exchange rates. That is, you would never open the newspaper and try to find out what the exchange rate between the, the pound and the French franc, the pound that the US dollar was. It was fixed for years. I mean, I grew up in a world where there were 30 drachmas to a, to, a, to a dollar forever. Interest rates were fixed. Can you imagine a world where f- interest rates were not exactly fixed, but more or less around 4%? You knew, you knew that you know, for, if you borrowed money, you would be paying 4% forever. And but that that's like a centrally planned gospel and Soviet economy, more or less, without without common ownership of the means of production. But it was planned. The only way that could work was if all these currencies were effectively based on the U.S. dollar. So we had the dollar in different guises. But the only way we could have the dollar in different guises was that if the United States was a surplus country. Because if it was a surplus, while it was a surplus country, after the Second World War, it was the only country that had had a trade surplus. Every time they sold a jet or a car or a washing machine to a Brit, to a French person, to a German person, hmm, a quantity of dollars would go to the United States. So the United States would give us dollars 
dollarizers, martial aid, for instance, other ways as well, same to Japan. And then by selling us their wares, we would return the dollars and that would complete the recycling loop. But for that to happen, they had to have a trade surplus. After 1968-69, they had a trade deficit, which means that they were leaking dollars. Dollars were a net stream or torrent of dollars was coming to Europe and to Japan. At some point, those who held the dollars, Germans, Brits, Saudi Arabians, Japanese, started worrying that they wouldn't be able to buy as much gold with the dollars because there was this increasing quantity of dollars. And that meant that the fixed exchange rate regime had to break down. And it broke down. And the Americans, instead of being yet another empire that lost its power, its political power, its military power, its hegemonic power, as a result of going into the red, managed, and it's the only empire that has ever managed that, to become more hegemonic by using their trade deficit in the way that I described before, to ensure that the Japanese, British, Dutch, German, French, Italian, and later Chinese capitalists needed the American trade deficit as a source of demand for their, their net exports to the United States. And this is the world that precipitated neoliberalism, precipitated the, the, the you know, financialization, the crazy bets that were placed in Wall Street and therefore gave rise to the regularization led to the crash of 2008. And then after that, the central banks of the West, with the Federal Reserve, the American Central Bank leading the way, started printing all the money that replaced capitalist profits. Mm. This is another part of techno-feudalism. So this is more recently? This is after 2009. With the QE. There's an amazing, before we get to 2008, 2009 and quantitative easing, I think that's really important to say that any, any Marxist knows that really, you know, the history of the last, you know, what, 75 years since World War II is a succession of trying to mollify and address crises, 71, the late 1980s, early 1990s, early 2000s, 2008. But what happens between 2002 and 2007 with regards to financialization is extraordinary. And the numbers are just mind-blowing for mm -hmm. me. And you talk about this in the book. So in 2002, to total global GDP, that's all the economic transactions, planetary economic transactions, which are monetized 50 trillion US dollars. Mm -hmm. The worth of total global uh, transactions um, by 2007 rises to 75 trillion. So it increases by 50%, mm. which is obviously quite a lot. But when you look at the sum of bets of what you call in the global money market, that rises from 70 trillion in 2002 to 750 trillion. Mm -hmm. So it's more than 10 times increased. Yep. So what happens between 2002 and 2007 in terms of financialization and this huge explosion in, in financialized debts? Deregulation. Thatcherism and Reaganism reached its crescendo with Blair here in this country and with Clinton in the United States. Effectively, the bankers were unshackled from all the constraints of the New Deal. Uh, the American New Deal and later the Clement Attlee and 1950s government's constraints on, on bankers. You see, Governments had been burned once in 1929 because the Roaring 20s were a period of um, uh, unfettered financialization. The bankers, let's not forget, create money out of thin air. 
you know, the people talk about the money tree um, in order to lambast socialists, but it is the bankers who have access to the money tree and they can pluck as much money from thin air as they want. Uh, and of course, when they overdo it, under the weight of all those mountains of money that they've created, uh, they buckle under and something like 1929 or 2008 happens. After 1929... Because a certain amount of people can't pay back liabilities and all of a sudden the whole thing I mean, is look, when, screwed. When all these leveraged bets, that is bets based on borrowing from the future, <laughs> not from other people, but from the future, thin air, you know, when when let's let's make this once again clear that when Lloyd's Bank or Barclays Bank give you a loan, they are not giving you money that somebody has saved. They are conjuring it up like magicians. So effectively, they type on, in, into your bank account, you know, ten thousand pounds or fifty thousand or a hundred thousand mm. pounds. That money doesn't exist. It's out of thin air. Bankers have this right that is given to them by society, by you and me, by our listeners and audience. And then, of course, while these bets uh, work out, you know, if the, 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 the borrowers manage to make this money and also make the money to pay interest, bankers are laughing all the way to their own bank. Surprisingly, they're very profitable when it works like exactly. that. Exactly. And then they think that they deserve the money. And th but then at some point, all, it, all that is needed is a small pinprick to deflate this or to burst that, 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 that bubble. And then what happens is you and I, and especially the working class of our countries, bail them out. And more money printing by central banks. So after 2008, 2009, we had 35 trillion printed on behalf of bankers, $35 trillion. Uh, to put it in context, uh, back then, Back in 2009, when that started, the total GDP income of the United States of America was 17, 18. So they printed 35. And they gave it to bankers. Now, bankers wanted to lend it to business people. Business people, however, looked around at the little people out there who were suffering under austerity, who were impecunious, who couldn't buy anything, as if they were going to invest it. So all this money that is being printed uh, ends up inflating asset prices, artwork, house prices, and it never feeds into investment. That's why in Britain now, uh, you, you have this ridiculously low level of productivity because there's been no investment. And that's the same thing in the European Union. Um, and the only entrepreneurs that care to take some of this liquidity and not just put it back to the stock exchange and instead use it to build up new capital are the tech lords. They took the money and society, in other words, as a result of the inane handling by the establishment and the central banks of the 2008 crisis, effectively, we have funded the buildup of masses of cloud capital. Cloud capital would always have been built, but not at that rate. Let me put it in terms of uh, uh, somebody who should know, uh, McNamee, who wrote uh, Zucht, who, a tech uh, investor who was uh, part of Facebook, one of the early investors in Facebook. He agrees with my assessment. Um, he sent me an email recently saying so, uh, that nine out of ten, the $10 that have been invested in what I call cloud capital came from central bank money. That's so it's, a, it's, you know, feudalism, remember? The sovereign printed the money and the feudal lords used it uh, 
together with their property rights over land, to exploit the peasants and the vassals, which are today's capitalists who produce in the old-fashioned way, using machinery, industrial robots, yeah. without cloud capital. And one last thing. If you want to understand the difference between Volkswagen and Tesla, or Chinese cars, understand this. Tesla is connected to the cloud. That's why Elon Musk wanted Twitter. Every time a Tesla goes around, Tesla acquires enormous information about what music you are listening to while you're driving, where you're going. This is connected with the tweets that you, you send. And therefore, the value added to Tesla comes increasingly from the cloud and far less from the money you pay to buy the car. Volkswagen, because it's German and Germany, Europe, Britain, France, Italy, Greece, we have not invested in cloud capital. We cannot compete because we will never be able to compete. Well, we, you and I, of course not. But even our capitalists are vassals to the American and Chinese cloudalists, the owners of cloud capital. Navarro Media has been around for more than a decade. It has grown to an extraordinary extent thanks to the generosity and kindness of our brilliant supporters. Downstream in that context is a bit more recent. It's only really appeared in the last couple of years. It's now become our standout interview show here on YouTube. It gives us an opportunity to talk about big ideas with brilliant minds, the kinds of people wrestling with the challenges we all have to confront in the 21st century. If you enjoy Downstream, if you enjoy the rest of our content here at Navarra Media, obviously click the YouTube subscribe button. But if you want to go further than that, support our work financially. Make a one-off payment or a monthly one. We obviously prefer the latter if you can. And to do that, go to navarramedia.com forward slash support to help build a people-powered media. Because we can all have political commitments to change the world, to get us out of the mess we find ourselves in. But as long as the billionaires, the media oligarchs own media in Britain and elsewhere, we're going to make very little progress. So like I say, help us build people-powered media. Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. I mean, it's an elegant hypothesis, um, but particularly this example you've just given of cars. You talk about how basically the German car manufacturing industry is over because their global comparative advantage is in high quality engineering, mm. the combustion engine, which has accumulated over what, 100, 150 years of engineering expertise. But the cars of the 21st century require a very different skill set, very different resources, and they're going to be made by, if anyone, Alphabet, Apple, eventually, Tesla, various Chinese companies. So I think, I think it's very elegant in that regard. And there's a really interesting point here as well. You talk about it at the end of the book. I, I don't want to talk about the end of the book just yet because we're only getting started, but um, <laughs> about the kinds of coalitions you have to build. There was a really fascinating side I heard recently, which was the triumph of Donald Trump can only be understood as a clash between national and family capital, which is to say that family capital, petty bourgeois um, capitalists were on side with Trump against what they perceived as a national variant of often cloud capital, but also finance. We'll talk about some big finance firms like BlackRock and whatnot. And I thought that makes so much sense because that is, that is precisely the fragment of, of, of the capitalist class. Petit bourgeois, you know, we can park that. It's quite a difficult one to really explain. But that is the fragment which has been hammered by 15 years of QE, which has been hammered by deglobalization, um, de-industrialization. And so 
for me, it's hugely interesting that, you know, people who historically the left has been very ambivalent about the petty bourgeois, the small business owner, even the national capitalist making non-cloud commodities, there's the space there for interesting forms of alignment and alliance. This is absolutely correct. But may I say that it is not entirely new. Which social class was behind Mussolini and Hitler? The petty bourgeois. Yeah. The petty bourgeois who was squashed by the crisis in the 1920s in Italy and then late 1920s and early 1930s in Germany. Fascism is a petty bourgeois phenomenon. It begins not from the working class, it starts from the petty bourgeoisie and then spreads to the working class once the crisis of capitalism begins to deplete industrial workers' jobs. Exactly the same happened after our generation's 1929, which I keep saying happened in 2008. Mm. Except that after 2008, the process of immiseration of the petty bourgeoisie and the working class was worse than it was in the 1920s and 30s. Because if you think about it, uh, in the United States, all the factories shifted to China and to Vietnam, all of them. All of them, they just shifted. They, and it was a part of what I call in the book a dark deal. So the dark deal between Washington DC and the Chinese Communist Party was, okay, we will send you over our machinery, our industry. You will produce the stuff. We will keep the IP, the intellectual property rights, in the case of Apple. So uh, we will get a large share of the monopoly profits from selling iPhones, but you will keep the share, you, you'll keep the surplus value that you extract from your Chinese proletariat. You will be paid in dollars, which of course we mint as a deficit country, so they are worthless unless you send them back to Washington, and you will finance our government, and you will get an interest rate from the bonds, the treasury bills that you will buy. At the same time, you buy real estate. We will not let you buy companies unless they are useless mm. <laughs> and not particular. So you, you can't buy Google, you can't buy Bank of America. Uh, that, that's the same deal as they were given to the Japanese in the 1960s. That is the deal that enriched Chinese capitalists and American retailers at the expense of the American working class. You know, people talk about the dominance of the, the dollar and they assume that it's a good thing for the United States. It isn't. The dominance of the dollar is fantastic for Americans and tears and for Chinese capitalists and Japanese capitalists and German capitalists. And the people who actually uh, suffer the most as a result of the exorbitant privilege of the dollar is the American working class, which was serially abandoned by the Democratic Party. And politics hates a vacuum. Donald Trump waltzed in and took it. And I suppose people, just quickly on that, people might say, oh, well, we know that low-income earners vote Democrat, etc. Obviously, that's highly stratified on racial lines. But in, in those states where Trump gets over the line in 2016, former heavily industrialized states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, that is precisely the story. And I think even now, seven years later, it's very hard for the left to understand that it was former blue-collar workers, many in trade unions who, who took Donald Trump to the White House, they may do again. I mean, who knows? It's a different world now. But, you know, I, I think they might do again. You say something as well, building on this, which is the worst thing you want as a Chinese capitalist is for Juan to be 
the, um, global, the, currency. the global currency replacing the dollar, right. which is quite funny because when people say it's the end of the dollar, you know, China is, you know, heading towards hegemony status, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, actually, if you're a Chinese exporter, that's a, that's a terrible thing to be Indeed, or a at. German exporter. Why yeah. do you think the euro never competed with the dollar for supremacy? Because the German capitalists w w would hate that. <laughs> Why do you think we have no euro bond? Because the lack of a euro bond guarantees that the euro will never compete with the dollar. So German industrial capital does not want the euro bond, doesn't care so much about you know, fiscal union and so on. It just doesn't want to lose access to the American trade deficit, which is the reason why they are um, you know, amassing all this, all, all this surplus value. So, yeah, um, it's, we must stop thinking in, in football terms. You know, my nation against the other nation. Mm. You know, England versus Argentina. Mm. It's not that. Um, it, we, the division is within our countries. It's between the, capital, the capitalist class in China and the proletariat in China. The capitalist class or the rentier class, not even the capitalist class, the rentiers and the techno-feudal lords in the United States that have diametrically opposed interests to those of 60% of the American population. Diametrically opposed interests. Uh, so, yeah, let's go back to thinking as left-wingers. Can, can I ask a question? <laughs> this, this isn't in my notes, uh, but can I ask a question about the euro? Mm. Because the argument you're making about euro bonds is really interesting. I have always been a critic of the euro, um, and I cannot understand why an Italian or a French leftist supports the euro. Because the whole Euro project, as I understand it, the whole, basically, the sort of political economy of the Eurozone seems to be premised upon the idea of, well, basically, it's for German exporters. Um, it's, it's destroyed to historically powerful, you know, manufacturer-exporter-oriented countries, particularly Italy. You know, Italy is a share of the, the size of the economy, its share of, proportionate rather to the size of its economy, its manufacturing base was about the same as Germany's, even as, as recently as sort of 10, 15 years ago, before 2008. And it seems obvious to me that membership of the Eurozone means permanent decline for Italians, permanent yeah. decline for Italy's productive uh, permanent base. Permanent austerity. Yeah, permanent austerity, yeah. permanent. And this is a G7 economy or G8 economy. Um, the same for France, to a slightly lesser extent. And yet there aren't major movements in either country to, to leave the euro. I, I find that, I find it extraordinary. Now, I know there's huge downsides to leaving the euro. It'd be very painful. But the fact that's not even in the conversation in both nations is perplexing for me. It was in the conversation, but um, it was killed off. Let, let me explain what the lure of the euro was for progressive people, people who were not sellouts, turncoats. Because the term goes, you know, we know why they wanted the euro. <laughs> uh, I have this memory of um, the 1970s when Greek trade unions would uh, go on strike to gain some pay rise. Strikes are always extremely painful. There's a lot of sacrifice. Usually the strikers are never compensated. It's the strike breakers who get compensated because they get the pay rise even though they have not suffered any of the costs of the strike. Uh, and the next day, or five days after securing a 5% in, let's say, wage increase, the Bank of Greece would uh, devalue the drachma and they would lose it all. So the notion of a currency that cannot be devalued was very attractive even to trades unions. 
What they did not factor in was that there was a price to pay for that. And the price was that there would be internal devaluation. That <laughs> uh, they would, uh, you know, not not find one morning that their currency, the, the money they had in their wallet was devalued as a result of a, an action of the, the Bank of Greece. But, you know, they would never get a pay rise. Indeed, they would get pay cuts. Don't forget that average wages today in Greece are 35% lower. 35% lower mm. in nominal terms, not in absolute terms, than mm. they were in 2007. Crazy. That's right? crazy. Same, similarly with pensions. So that they didn't factor in. Once you get trapped into the Eurozone, huh, it's like being in a house which is on fire but has no fire exits. Uh, you need to demolish the walls to get out. You put it very nicely when you said that the costs are very large because this is exactly how it's been designed to make the cost very large. You know that when we entered the Eurozone, our printing presses were destroyed. Did you know that? No. It was part of the deal. No. Had, it was part of the deal. You have to, you know, to, to, to dismantle and destroy. Your national military. Like, like, like the IRA had to destroy its weapons as part of the Good Friday Agreement, we had to destroy our printing presses as we entered the Eurozone. Now, Somehow, I don't believe that the, that the Buddhist bank, the Germans, destroyed their printing presses. <laughs> but we certainly did. And so did the Italians. That's extraordinary. And, and what you just said there about nominal, I mean, just for people to understand, nominal means, look, we're not talking about inflation or what you can buy. No. We're, we're literally talking about the currency. Yeah. And I, I, I saw a statistic recently about the purchasing power of 18 to 35-year-old Italians. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like 50. It's declined precipitously since the 1990s. Yeah, it's, I think it's basically 50% what it was 20 years ago. Yes. And you think, you only get to live once. But that's why we have a neo-fascist in government. Well, quite, exactly. Yeah. Of course people are going to be angry. You <laughs> that's literally... why the Socialist Party died. That's why the Communist Party doesn't exist, because it accepted this process. Um, and the only uh, voices that... Uh, are supported by the public in, in Italy, are the ones who remain anti-establishment, unfortunately, as uh, descendants of Mussolini. I mean, you, I, I understand why people are angry. I yeah. do understand why they turn to the far right, because you, you only get one shot at life. You're around for 70, 80 years, and there is a political settlement which is screwing you over so badly. It's depriving you of the life you expected, yeah. which you deserve. And nobody in the political class is doing any, anything about it. Don't forget the other great danger for countries like Italy and Greece. Emigration. Not immigration. Emigration. The problem is not that the, <laughs> the Africans are coming. The problem is that the Greeks and the Italians are leaving. Mm, or particularly for Greece. I mean, in recent years, Italy it's too. Been extraordinary. Italy, yeah. Italy. Young Italians are all over the place. They're leaving. Today, as we speak, they're leaving. So do you think then, I mean, so let's build on this for a moment. We, we agree that the Eurozone probably locks in permanent austerity, industrial decline for some mm. really big countries historically, France, Italy, Greece as well, of course. Germany as well. Because remember the class analysis? The lower bottom of the German population or income distribution are now 15% worse off than they were 20 years ago. Mm. Although, they're, yeah, their capitalist class is doing very well. Yeah. So, well, so, the Greek capitalist class are doing extremely well. Today. Yeah. The, so the shipping magnates, yeah. Not just the shipping magnates. No. I can give you names. Please. But, you know, Yanis Peristeris, Mytilineos, Melisanidis. They are not, they don't make money so much out of shipping, but they own the power generation 
and power distribution network as a result of the privatization of our formerly nationalized power grid. Um, they charge an arm and a leg for that. Uh, the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, has allowed them to uh, multiply by a factor of four their uh, surpluses. They own every single television station and anyone who dares speak their name in parliament gets absolutely vilified and demonized. So, you know, you have a dictatorship of those oligarchs who are... Uh, come to Athens, I'll take you to the northern suburbs, you see the Lamborghinis and the Porsches and the Ferraris. Well, I'll hold you to that, Yanis. Yeah. You can it's, show me it's a can very, show us It's around. a very ugly, very ugly scene. Well, okay, so what I would say, I'm not suggesting for one moment that the German working class get a better deal out of it, but what I would say is there is a fragment of Italian or French capital who gets a really bum deal out of this, industrial capital, mm. which comparatively speaking was getting a better deal 25 years ago. That's where they were giving a lot of money from the, 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 the coronavirus uh, uh, recovery fund to keep them sweet, and they've kept them sweet. They gave them something like you know, 130 billion so let, to keep them happy. Let's talk about COVID, because this is interesting, right? Because well, the pandemic was a major, major boon. Uh, it was, um, you know, a, a manna from heaven for the establishment. Manna from heaven. I'm not talking about vaccines and all that, right? I'm talking about an opportunity to take on a lot more debt, pile it up on the shoulders of the weaker, of the working classes, and distribute it amongst themselves. Only in Greece, in 18 months, during the pandemic, the right-wing government was allowed to borrow another 60 billion in a country where GDP is 190. That's a huge amount. Uh, given that we were already hugely indebted, mm. they gave them another 60 billion to spread the money around. That's why they won the, the election. So the, 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 there are these moments that we're chronicling in the rise of first the global minotaur and then what you call techno-feudalism. 71, 2008, and then more recently, 2020. Yeah. And you claim, really, that after 2008, Western capitalism has a 1929 moment. But then through the years of QE and through the pandemic, we basically see the end of, of capitalism as we know it. C can you explain why all this money printing that's primarily going to the top 0.01% or whatever we want to say, what, why does that mean the end of capitalism mm. and the transition to something else? You see, it depends on what you, how you define capitalism. Because people, different people, I, mean, I have a Marxist definition of capitalism, but not everybody does. Some people think, oh, the marketplace, buying and selling, not having the state telling you what to buy and how much to pay for it, that's capitalism. No, it's not. Capitalism is a system based on the private ownership of the essential means of production uh, and a system which is predicated on profit that comes out of surplus value, exploitation of labor, of wage labor, and markets. The whole point about the transition from feudalism to capitalism was that you have had the process of commodifi commodification of land as a result of the enclosures, getting rid of the peasants, and commodification of labor. During feudalism, land and labor didn't have markets. Workers worked, but they didn't. They couldn't quit. They didn't receive a wage. Just that the feudal lords sent the sheriff over to collect rents from them. Okay, so markets and profits—the two pylons on which capitalism sits—both of them are now optional and actually a sideshow. Instead of profits, you have central bank money 
combined with cloud rents, rents, yeah, the 40% that you uh, of the price you pay on Amazon retained by by Jeff Bezos, all the surpluses that private equity firms get. Remember, three companies, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, own 90% of all companies in the New York Stock Exchange. They don't make profits. They make rents. So you have rent-replacing profit and Amazon.com-like companies, platforms, replacing markets. Amazon.com, Alibaba, Uber, they are not markets. They are platforms where trading takes place, buying and selling, outside the marketplace. They're like digital fiefdoms owned by a techno-feudal lord who collects rents. Remember, Uber doesn't have cars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the same way that uh, the landlord did not participate in production, he simply collected. That's what Uber does. That's what Airbnb, Airbnb does. That's what uh, Amazon.com does. So if you replace the two pylons of capitalism with rent, cloud rent primarily, and digital platforms, and all that is founded on a foundation of cloud capital, what you end up is something which is not like capitalism. No, we could have called it capitalism. I could have called the book digital capitalism. I could have called it cloud capitalism. I could have called it um, uh, rentier capitalism. Some people, some of my colleagues, like Guy Standing, call it rentier capitalism. But you see, I think it's important to ditch the word capitalism. Why? Because if this was the, the 1770s, Uh, and we were talking about the state of the world. What was going on then? Capitalism was already upending and undermining feudalism, taking over from feudalism. We could have called the new system, instead of calling it capitalism, we could have called it industrial feudalism. But that would have robbed us of the opportunity to concentrate our mind that this is a great transformation. This is not feudalism anymore. Even though it would have been technically correct to call it industrial feudalism or capital feudalism. For the same reason, I'm making the controversial claim that this is not capitalism anymore, even though it is a result of the triumph of capital. Before we go to the next question, the thing about Amazon, um, I think can often be understated. People think, oh, it's it, like you say, these aren't necessarily market transactions. It even goes beyond that to an extent. So for instance, I'm sure people watching and listening to this are familiar with the Amazon basics range. Mm-hmm. You know, where you get a product which looks almost exactly the same as another one, but it's, you know, 30% cheaper or whatever. Those products are created precisely because they have the analytics to look at the most profitable products Indeed. with the best margins, with the highest volumes sold, uh, lowest customer returns. And they say, let's make exactly the same thing. So they don't just own the keys in terms of, can I enter, you know, the town square to sell my goods and services? They also have data that the sellers don't have themselves. Of course. That is the whole point. It's incredible. Same with Uber. Yeah, incredible. Now, why can't Uber drivers get together and create their own app? Well, they could. But that app would not have all the data that Uber has on you and me, and including their drivers. So it is this cloud capital, the algorithm, to put it this way, way, the algorithm, which creates the land, the digital land, where you must be in order to survive as a capitalist and therefore a vassal hmm? or as a cloud surf. Do you think we're going to have a war with China? I very much fear so. Very much fear so. Every move that Biden is taking is uh, one more step closer to um, some kind of confrontation. Of course, I hope I'm wrong. 
And maybe it won't happen, maybe it will happen, but it is a clear and present danger. Because it seems to be something that people just underprice, that you know, the idea of a conflict between two powers as geopolitical influence shifts from the West to the East, oh, that can't happen. I, to me, it sounds like a, a recipe for disaster. Mm, it is, it is. Uh, if you look at the nuclear war, clock, it's much closer to midnight now than it ever was. So at, at least the nuclear scientists and the, uh, the peace movement that are running that uh, particular measure of the risk that we're facing as a species uh, are not underselling it. Mm. And, and, and given techno-feudalism's concentration in the Western Hemisphere and East Asia, does that mean Europe's over? Does that mean just yes. Europe is finished? Yes. Europe is over. I was chatting with Andres Manuel, the president of Mexico, uh, a few months ago, uh, and we, we we had this this conversation, and he said, "Yanis, look, I you know as a Mexican, I'm closer to Europe than I'm to the United States, culturally, spiritually, politically, ideologically, but Europe is irrelevant to us. Uh, it's a BRICS, China, in other words, not the BRICS. The only thing that matters from the BRICS is the sea." China mm. and our huge neighbor north of our border. Uh, and I, I see this wherever I go. And it makes perfect sense. Look, Aaron, let's, let's just for a moment imagine with great hope that there is a peace process that starts for Ukraine tomorrow. Hmm? It's a big table somewhere in the UN, UN, Geneva, wherever. We know who will represent Ukraine, Zelensky, Russia, Putin, America, Biden, China, Xi, India, Modi. Who's going to represent Europe? You just ask yourself that question and then suddenly you realize how irrelevant Europe is. Because it, it used to be Merkel. Merkel had the political power and clout to do it. Scholz doesn't. Macron doesn't. Why? Not only because they are pipsqueaks compared to Merkel. They are. But because anything they say will be vetoed by the government of Poland, the government of Lithuania, Estonia, Finland, Sweden, who considered them to be Putin's handmaidens, both Scholz and Macron. I'm not passing value judgment, I'm simply describing. Oh, so true. the two countries that will have to pay for the reconstruction of Ukraine will not be allowed to represent the European Union in these negotiations, and so who will? Von der Leyen. I mean, she, 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 she's only there because she failed as a minister in Merkel's cabinet and Merkel wanted to get rid of her and mm -hmm. sent her to Brussels because in Brussels you can't hear them scream. Remember the line from Borgen? Mm -hmm. um, so Europe is politically, uh, th this political paralysis reflects the fact that we don't have any cloud capital. Yeah, and I, well, I, I would add as well, Europe's demographic pyramid is a nightmare. I mean, China's isn't great, but Europe's is a nightmare, if you include, obviously, the East and Central Europe. Energy resources. Yeah, but you know, that, that's what I insist. Cloud capital, it's geography. It's, it is cloud capital, nothing else. Everything else we could have gotten out of. If you don't have a competitor to Google, a competitor to Uber, a competitor to Facebook, a competitor to Apple, a competitor to Amazon.com, if every German or Italian or French or British producer has to go through those cloud lists in order to sell their stuff, even in Europe, and, you know, Amazon makes 42 billion every year only in Europe mm. and pays zero, zero tax, zero. Mm. Well, you're gone. You're finished.
It's interesting as well with, with Europe because recently the sort of spokespeople, and this isn't this might sound sort of like Little Englander or something, it's not meant to be, it's just an observation. The sort of spokespersons of the last two years of Europe in the whole Ukraine-Russia um, conflict have really been statespeople from smaller countries. So this lady, Kaya Kalas, I think, from um, Estonia, yeah. she, she's speaking on behalf of, the, of Europe, and you think, well, then Europe must be buggered. Because if you've got, you can't have Sanna Marin or Kalas speaking on the behalf of the German, the French, the Italian, the British, the Spanish people with regards to big foreign policy choices. Because when push comes to shove, they're going to say, sod off. I don't know who you are. I've never seen you before. But within the media discourse, they go, she's so brave. She's, she might go work for NATO. She'll be the general secretary or whatever. See, we Great, are deferring to NATO. The EU has gone. It's been replaced by NATO. Exactly. Stoltenberg, who, whom we didn't know his name until the war in Ukraine, suddenly is running Europe. And Callas, look, I wouldn't mind if a woman, young woman from a small country represented me as a European. I'd love that. You know what I mind? If you ask her, so what's the end game? Define victory in the war in Ukraine. The only logical answer consistent with what she wants and says is to take Moscow. Because she's talking about dragging Putin to the international court. Mm. Now, I would like all these bastards to be dragged to the international court, including Tony Blair, right? Uh, of course, of course, I'd love, I'd love that. But how are you going to drag Putin to the international court? You have to take Moscow. There's no other way. Mm. Or you're going to have to incite a coup in Moscow that will bring about regime change. Mm. If that happens, because Putin has killed off all the progressives, whoever takes over from Putin will be worse than Putin. So, Callas, Miss Callas, can you please tell me what the, your end game is? The, her answer terrifies me. Mm. <laughs> that is the problem I have and with Miss Callas. Th there's this huge disconnect between foreign policy and defense preferences and the electorate. It's like the electorate don't matter. 450, 400 million Europeans do not matter. Here's the final question. You say that we've seen the, the eclipse of capitalism really since 2008. You also think we've seen the death of liberalism and the idea of the liberal individual. What does that have to do with cloud capital? The whole point about liberalism is the celebration of the individual as a source of legitimacy. A country, a polity, a political system is legitimate in the liberal mind to the extent that it represents the autonomous will of individuals. Remember Thatcher? There is no such thing as society. It's only individuals, eh? families and individuals. But if the individual has a relationship with cloud capital, with Amazon's Alexa, whereby the individual trains Alexa to train the individual to train Alexa, to train the individual to train Alexa, to put into the individual's mind what he wants or she wants or it wants, where is this autonomy? Hayek, the greatest guru of Thatcher, uh, used to celebrate the market as a mechanism that not only finds the right prices to equilibrate demand and supply, but the mechanism that actually is allowing us to develop our own character. He used to say, you know, I go into a shop and I come out with something I didn't even know I wanted. So the marketplace shapes me as a person, as an autonomous liberal individual on whom uh, the whole liberal project is based. But if it's not the market, but a centrally planned system that the Soviet Union would love to have had because that's what Amazon.com is. It's a centrally planned machine that belongs to one man who could be Jeff Bezos, who could be Joseph Stalin. Then where is the liberal individual in this? Gone. In a puff of smoke. 
So basically this idea that there's a tyranny really of big tech and it, it, it doesn't just inflect economies, but our, our sort of very psyche and psychology. I mean, that's a, that's a big claim. But it is, Aaron. Look, I was talking to some students of mine a couple of years ago and young people who wanted a, a reference for me to find a job, to go, go and study at the postgraduate level. And I saw this. I saw this in full technicolor. You know, they were angst-ridden because they know that when they go to get interviewed for whatever, to go to university, but primarily to get a job, in a, a good job, the interviewer will have checked their social media presence, footprint. Every photo that they upload, every video on TikTok at midnight, they know or they assume will be seen. So there's no demarcation between work and play. And they are constantly trying to imagine what kind of self they should create in their own bosom, in their own soul, that will appeal to Google or to Facebook or to a good employer. That's the end of the liberal individual. To conclude, it sounds like we're, we're returned to feudal Europe, but with uh, a touch of the Stasi. Doesn't sound good. I mean, that's a good idea. Well, the Stasi would have loved cloud capital. Well, they would be would. kicking themselves because, you know, they created all these amazing mechanisms for surveillance. And, you know, this, we volunteered yeah. our information to this. Wiki Stasi. <laughs> on, on that note, Yanis, it's a great book. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. <laughs>